0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask people what five things from their life they would choose to preserve in a time capsule, four things they cherish, and one they loathe and are glad to get rid of. My guest this week is is the multi-award-winning writer Paul Mayhew Archer, whose credits include The Vicar of Dibley, Mrs. Brown's Boys, and the screen version of Roald Dahl's SEO Trot, starring Judy Dench and Dustin Hoffman. He's also produced the much-loved Radio 4 shows I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue and Old Harry's Game. And as a script editor, he's worked on everything from Spitting Image to Miranda. In 2011, Paul was diagnosed with Parkinson's, an incurable illness that gets progressively worse, sadly. Typically, Paul has managed to find humor in it. In 2016, he made his first documentary, Parkinson's, The Funny Side, for which he won the Grierson Award for Best Documentary Presenter. And in 2017, he started doing stand-up about Parkinson's with his one-man show, Incurable Optimist, which he's performed all over the country. I spoke to Paul at his home on a rather windy day, as you'll hear, just before lockdown, where he told me what five things he would like to put in a time capsule, among other things. It was a joy to do. Hope you find it a joy to listen to. Paul, all me, you archer. And lovely to be here, in uh, your slightly windy office. <laughs> yes, I'm apologising about that, I do apologise. With an enormous Dawn French in the corner. Well, don't say enormous, that I mean... <laughs> <would> be, <no. laughs> we can't get away from it. She
2: is life-size, it's, it's, uh, it's um, an advertising thing that's um, a cutout, and it is absolutely life-size that she no. is that, that short.
0: That would cheer you up every day, though, wouldn't it?
2: It does. It's fantastic. I come up here and there's (laughs) a smiling face. And it's absolutely, wonderfully invigorating.
0: Mm. So, welcome to my time capsule. And let's start with the first item.
2: My first item that I want to put in is a cinema seat. Mm. Um, Because I have always loved going to the cinema. And some of my favourite memories are just stupid memories uh, of going to the cinema. I... I saw Saving Private Ryan in Los Angeles at the Chinese Theatre. And I absolutely loved Saving Private Ryan. And the only thing that slightly spoiled my enjoyment was that sitting behind me were two people who went... ..and sort of kept muttering very quietly to one another. And I couldn't make out what they were saying, but they seemed quite indignant. And then at the end as the lights went up, they suddenly started speaking in German. And I realised I'd been sitting in front of a couple of neo-Nazis who'd oh, no. taken great
0: advice. How dare they suggest that we were so nasty. So,
2: the memories I have of going to the cinema are often of, of ridiculous things happening. I, um, I went took Simon, our son and a friend, to see Arachnophobia. Oh. And we queued up outside and uh, the queue took forever. And eventually we got in. And uh, there was lots of talking going on. It was a Saturday afternoon, so I thought, oh, at least the film hasn't started because they're talking. And then I (laughs) realised that the film had started and they were (laughs) talking. And as my eyes grew accustomed to the the darkness, I realised that I was one of about six adults in a packed cinema with teenagers and younger. And so after 20 minutes, I stood up. And I said in a very loud voice, Would you please stop talking? Some of us are trying to watch this film. And I was greeted with a chorus of, Fuck off, wanker! <laughs> and then, about 10 minutes later, I was about to stand up again. And Simon, who was 12 at the time, grabbed my hand and said, Don't say a word, you're so embarrassing. <laughs> And we had to leave. And, and on another occasion, I, um, I take my umbrella with me. And uh, while I was th- waiting for the film to start, I suddenly had a brilliant, uh, absolutely brilliant idea. Because I'm often leaving umbrellas behind. You know? And I suddenly realised how I could avoid doing it. And I undid my shoelace. And I looped the shoelace through the little loop in the umbrella. <laughs> and then tied up the shoelace. And I thought, when the film ends and I stand up and start to move, the umbrella will come with me and I can't possibly leave it behind. And I thought, God, this is so clever. I mean, I ought to be able to sort of market this idea. (laughs) Anyway, two hours later, the film ended. I stood up, trod on the umbrella as I moved my other foot so that the knot tying the loop knotted so tightly I literally couldn't undo it. So I then started to walk to the cinema, walk out to the cinema with my, the umbrella tied to my foot and then I realised this was impossible. <laughs> so, so I took, took my shoe off because that was the only way I could do it and then went outside and it was pissing with rain. <laughs> so I was then walking through Oxford with one shoe on and one shoe off And my umbrella above, with my shoe swinging in front of my eyes. And I thought, that's why that that idea isn't going to work.
0: I I shan't be getting in touch with Mr Branson. (laughs) I shall (laughs) not. Dragon's Den is not for me.
2: No, exactly. So, um, and also, I I don't know why I think there's a sort of etiquette with cinemas. I, I wanted to see Beauty and the Beast, the animation. And But I thought, for some reason, that you ought to take a child with you when you go and see Beauty and the Beast, it being a Disney cartoon. So I asked Simon, again, he was about 13, I think, mm. and he said, no, not really, I don't want to see Beauty and the Beast. But I felt I ought to take a, <laughs> a child So I went to see friends of ours and asked if their son would like to go. <laughs> so their son was 14, so he came with me, and uh, the film ended. And he stood up and said, right, let's go. And I was... I, I cry all the time in the cinema. So at the end of Beauty and the Beast, I was in tears. So, so he stood up and said, let's go. And I went, um, just... Um, Always like to see who does the matte backgrounds in uh, <laughs> these films. <laughs> Very important to stay for the credits. <laughs> oh, so embarrassing! No, not uh,
0: embarrassing at all. It is a fantastically moving film, Beauty and the Beast.
2: It's a it's a gloriously moving film, and the songs are. The uh, opening are
0: sequence amazing. in the t- and her singing around the, the yes yes. Is yes one of the great openings.
2: Yes, it is. It's, I, it's. I'm
0: afraid I auditioned for the part of the candlestick. Did you? For the West End, Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes, eight auditions. Oh,
2: my well, goodness. I was
0: basically Did just you get down to the last? Really down to the last, me and Derek Guiler. Oh. Guess my... who played it?
2: Was it Derek Guiler? It was Derek Guiler, <laughs> yes. Beautifully. Oh, oh, God. Eight, audi- oh, that's eight cr- auditions. Eight But that's cool, isn't it? I mean, how do you find auditions? They're, they're just, there must be a nightmare, aren't they?
0: I think that actually most actors are immune to the the horror of auditions because uh, you do so many. Yeah. And you're, you, in so many you're rejected that it becomes something you... I once spoke to a man on a train who told me... Uh, I asked him what he was doing and he said he was going for an interview for a job. Yeah. He'd lost his job three months before mm. and this was the third interview he'd had and he said if, if he didn't get this one he was going to really give up. Yeah. Lose hope. And I said, oh... I had three auditions yesterday.
2: Well, this is it. I think I've only had two. know. Oh hang on. Three job interviews in my life. Mm. That's it. Mm. And but did uh, you get all of them? No, I um, <laughs> I got I got the first one because it was the teaching job, uh, teaching in in Abingdon, mm-hmm. um, and I got the second one because that was the interview for my. Um, BBC job as a radio producer Um, and I didn't get the third one because that was a promotion in BBC radio and thank God I didn't get it because one of my ideas for being deputy head of the department, I think it was, was that we should axe programmes like Just a Minute. (laughs) 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 So I would have axed it 20 years before. (laughs) No. So thank God I didn't get that job. Oh, I remember the interview for the BBC job, the first one, um, one of the questions I was asked was, uh, David Hatch, who was the head of department at the time, said, I'm just going to run through our output, tell me what you think. And uh, I, they mentioned all the programmes, and I said what I thought. And I thought, this was quite easy, and it was only later that I learned that half the candidates disqualified themselves at that point, because they'd say, oh, I haven't heard that. No. I know. I haven't heard that. Um, to be honest, I don't listen to the radio very much. Oh no! And it is astonishing. It's like the apprentices, you know, and the apprentice who who seems to know nothing of what Alan Sugar does. I yeah. mean, and you'd think it's just a little bit of research. Yeah,
0: just make an effort.
2: Just you know, that's the easy.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's astonishing. David Hatch was in. I'm sorry, I'll read that again.
2: He was, and that was performer. the that was my little. Uh, teenage years thrill of uh, sort of, that was my programme Mm. you know, with my parents we used to listen to Round the Horn and uh, Mm. things like that and the Navy Lark but my we all, I think as teenagers we all have those things don't we, we We have those discoveries that we make Mm. that are peculiarly ours our son um, produces this country and that is now the sort of, you see on the Twitter sort of Feed of people who discover it for the first time. Yes. You know, the, the thrill of discovery is,
0: it's fabulous is just, it's just yeah.
2: fantastic.
0: I'm going to take you back to this cinema seat. Yeah. So I want to know, is this a cinema seat from your childhood? The, the sort of seat that you... It wasn't terribly comfortable and they would like theatre seats. Well, they would swing <clears> and shut. <throat> it's
2: interesting you should mention that because the most uncomfortable cinema seat I've ever sat in was in former Yugoslavia. And uh, we were on holiday in Lake Bled in Yugoslavia, and now Slovenia. And I went past the cinema there, and I noticed that Hatari, with John Wayne, was on. And I was very excited, and I said to my parents and my aunt, "Um, we should go and see Hatari, because it's good fun. So we trooped off to the cinema, and we sat in, and the lights went down, and a film started that was not Hatari, but a German film or French film with Yugoslavian subtitles (laughs) starring Hardy Kruger as a gentleman who had a rather mm, not very savoury interest in a young woman. Mm. And uh, we thought, oh, this must be the supporting film. Anyway, I think it went on for two and a quarter hours... (laughs) And at the end, he and the girl, I think, drowned in a lake. Not a moment too soon, frankly. <laughs> and then the other six people in the audience just got up and left. And we realised there, there was a word on the poster that, for Hatari, which I hadn't understood, which was basically, tomorrow, oh. <laughs> we went today. <laughs> and it was, it was an incredibly uncomfortable cinema. And uh, we just sat through this ghastly, awful, depressing film. And I think I was only about 11, so I was probably far too young to watch it anyway.
0: Mm. As a child, those seats were uncomfortable.
2: They, they? were very uncomfortable. Uh, and they,
0: they had that thing where they would swing up. So, in fact, as a small child, if you wanted to see the film properly, you always had a woman with a large hat sitting in front of
2: you. Yes. And so uh, you would
0: have to sort of kneel on it. And then yes. And that, that was rather
2: precipitous, wasn't it? The, the, the trouble is that the seats are now so comfortable... Mm. Um, and I've got to an age, really, where um, in the darkness and in the comfortable seat, the natural thing to do is to fall asleep. So <laughs> I I doze off no. doing most films. Uh, yeah. That's the problem. So I think seats ought to be a little bit uncomfortable. just the, Or maybe they can prod you with something. Maybe there should be a little sort of needle or something <coughs> under the seat that they can push up every time they detect you. Nodding off. I, I'd find that very helpful. <laughs> Maybe I should market that like the umbrella, do you think? I think it will work just as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, dear.
0: Telephones, I suppose, also is a problem, isn't it? Uh, I've had people in the cinema... Have a, you? Yes. Uh, have their phone ring and then sit there and answer it and have a full conversation.
2: Don't they do that in the theatre as well?
0: Uh, that's happened to me on well, stage as well. Well,
2: people have entire conversations...
0: Sorry, I can't talk at the moment, I'm watching a f I'm watching a play. Yeah, no, it's all right, this man said.
2: It's all right It's all right.
0: We were on stage, we could hear him. Oh my god <laughs> It's very encouraging. That's very encouraging indeed. I'm oh
2: dear, oh dear.
0: Right, so Paul, I'm gonna take this cinema seat i mean it's slightly uncomfortable and not not a great big deep arm chair like they are today with a a cup holder and all that no
2: don't make it too comfortable actually they there is a lovely thing they have in some cinemas there was one locally they have a kissing seat oh the back which is a sort of double seat that's rather nice yes
0: well then you could take a friend
2: I could, could take well, it'd through. have to be a
0: close friend to kiss the seat.
2: Yes. Well, I'd go with my wife, except no. that the problem is she can't really hear <laughs> what's going... My wife... If I go with Julie to the cinema, it's, it's terrible because she finds it very difficult to hear what's going on. We went to see Schindler's List and we were the last two people in the audience, so we were in a corner near the back... And so we were hearing all the ambient sound, but not really the dialogue. Mm. And after half an hour, she whispered to me, Is it all in Latin? (laughs) I don't know. Not even the beginning, I think it was Hebrew, but not Latin. But anyway, (laughs) the rest was in English, as far as I know, and she detected... Heard so little of it that she thought. I <laughs> oh, won't. Well, I'll give up. It's just lasted. so. So we left at that point, and oh. we went to see it again on another occasion when we could get decent seats.
0: Yes, it's it's not a film that you want to constantly keep saying, "Who's winning?"
2: <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> I don't think you would do that through Shindler's List. No. Well, let's put that cinema seat into your time capsule. So, what's your second item?
2: My second item is my humus, or my funny bone because it's um, of absolute uh, importance to me. Mm. And I don't know... Well, I do know why. I mean, I I used to think... Cos I used to try and write bits of comedy all through my teenage years. I, my hero mm. was Alan Akeborn. And I was trying to write little bits of akeborn dialogue or comedy and trying to do sketches at school and then I wrote a play in the sixth form and put it on... And I thought at the time that I was doing it to make my friends laugh, because that's the sort of that's the traditional thing, isn't it? Mm. You make people laugh and they won't hit you or beat you up or bully you. But actually it wasn't that. It was to make me laugh in a house where laughter was in short supply because my mum was very ill and dying effectively through my teenage years so the comedy was of absolute central importance to me and then subsequently it's become incredibly important to me because it now is keeping me going mm. with, because i have parkinsons and have had for 9 years and they i mean there are all sorts of therapeutic things that we can do we've discovered with illness one is um exercise dance and music but I've discovered that laughter and comedy actually does it. And I, I sort of proved it to myself the other evening because I was doing a little talk at one of the branches of Parkinson's UK and I got my pills wrong. I was supposed to take pills three times a day and I'd got the timing wrong. So I was off, as it were. You're either off or on. When you're on, the pills are working and you're sort of fairly... Good, you know, you're feeling fairly fine. And then when they go off, you go... It's like your motor powers down completely. Mm. And I'd gone off, and I was sort of standing there thinking, "Oh, I'm feeling quite wobbly. And then I started doing my little talk and got laughs, and as I got laughs, it was literally as though my dopamine pills were kicking in. I, I literally felt them working. And uh, and I hadn't taken any pills, so I can only assume that it was the laughter that was having the same effect. And wh- I don't know whether there's a chemical reason for it or a psychological reason, but it absolutely works. And I've come more and more to the conclusion that laughter is so important. Years ago, I was at a do, and somebody came up to me and they said... Uh, uh, I want to thank you for saving my life. And I said, uh, why? And she said, well, um, a year ago, uh, my husband died, and I was so depressed, I thought of ending it all. And then the Vicar of Dibley came on, and I laughed so much, I decided that life, after all, was worth living. And two thoughts went through my head. One was that this was an amazingly humbling moment, and the second thought was, thank God it was one of the funnier ones, because otherwise <laughs> she'd have been <laughs> gone. And and it's true. And I find I've I've sort of done my one-man show about Parkinson's and comedy, and I find that the audience's response, and the audience includes lots of people with Parkinson's, they they love it. They. Um, they love the fact that someone is getting back at this, this illness. Mm. And I remember going to... Um, uh, I was performing in Colchester, and a woman came up to me. She was pushing her husband. He was in a wheelchair, and his Parkinson's was pretty advanced. Mm. And she, just before I was due to go on, because I'd like to mingle with the audience beforehand, break the ice, it, relaxes me. Mm. And uh, anyway, she pushed her husband past in his wheelchair and she said, uh, well, best of luck for this evening. I said, thank you very much indeed. And she said, uh, you'll be doing well to get a laugh out of my husband. He hasn't laughed since David Cameron was Prime Minister. (laughs) 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 And so I thought, oh, this is going to be a good evening. And then at the end, uh, she pushed her husband back out. And uh, she stopped and she said, "Uh, can I give you a hug? Because this evening I've seen the whites of his molars. That's meant that he'd been grinning. Oh, how lovely. And it was just such a fantastically um, heartwarming moment, really. When I was working on Mrs Brown's Boys, um, Brendan, Mrs Brown, got a letter from uh, a mother and father saying that their daughter was uh, autistic. And they never knew how she felt or what she was thinking, except when they put the DVD of Mrs Brown's Boys on and then she would laugh. And so these parents were saying, thank you so much because for half an hour, you know, you bring our daughter to us. Uh, yes. And, you know, I mean, obviously we had to um, report them to the authorities because they were showing their daughter a 15 certificate DVD. Mm, yes, of course. But, apart from that. but it's it's extraordinary, isn't it? The effect that it has yes. on people. And I what I find also, and I, I just don't care about this really, is that I change stories. Because what I find is that I, I'm looking back on my life now and the memories I'm choosing to remember are the memories of the funny stuff. Because I think we we remember the wrong thing, we struggle to remember the wrong things. I think we try and remember the important events. But in fact, it's the silly little events, Mm. the funny ones, that we ought to remember. And what I'm finding also that I do is, as I remember them, if they're not quite funny enough, I'll doctor them a little bit.
0: Because you're an editor.
2: Because because I'm an editor. editor. Because also I'm looking for the funny side of things all the time and i remember the first time i the sort of the first time i did it was at um primary school i went to this school um school and um i wet myself uh, because i was late from a, a run and i had to go straight into afternoon assembly and i wet myself in afternoon assembly and i remember a little bit later, a few years later, probably when I was about 11 or 12, I decided to make this story comic rather than embarrassing. So I reimagined the school assembly and changed the hymn that we sang to As Pants the Heart for Cooling Streams When Heated in the Chase. (laughs) That wasn't the hymn we'd sung, but I decided it would be funnier. Because it seemed to fit. Mm. And I remember doing that at the age of 12, 11 or 12. And it's the first time I remember doing something of that nature. And I think it's good to sort of fiddle around with stories and and remember them as funny stories because otherwise, as they say, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. And it's better to remember them as as funny events. So I do that that all the time now, really. I think we're all toddlers at heart. And toddlers, what toddlers do is when they fall over, they look to mum and dad to decide whether they should laugh or cry. Yes. And I think um, we have lots of those moments in our lives when we have the choice between laughing and crying. And not enough of us always choose the, the laughing option. <laughs> I, I... um was a server at the local church during my teenage years and one time there was, it was the midnight service, Christmas it was the big service, the one night of the year when the church was packed, (laughs) so I was helping the vicar prepare the sacraments, I very carefully passed the box of wafers to the vicar, he consecrated them, turned them into the body of Christ Mm -hmm. passed the box back to me I very carefully opened the box upside down. No! They all fell on the floor. I mean, you know, they say, um, God is everywhere. (laughs) His son was all over the place. (laughs) It was just, it was, oh. And it was hideously embarrassing because, of course, he'd consecrated them. So he had, Mm. you can't leave any, you've got to eat the ones. So any of the ones that he could not possibly (laughs) give to probationers, he was... Trying to force them down. Force them down. We were finding them under the choir stores and everything. The organist had to play for about 10 or 15 minutes. The parishioners were wondering what the earth was going on. Mm. And all I could hear him going, was Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and I was never asked to serve again. No, <laughs> not And at the time, I was absolutely. Um, Awful! I felt terrible. But now I look back on it, and I think
0: of it as a funny, It's a wonderful, story. wonderful piece of comedy.
2: It is. You see, that's the thing.
0: I was brought up a Catholic, and I went to catechism mm. to learn about the communion, holy communion. And a nun slapped me round the face for putting my finger in the mouth to touch the wafer because it was stuck to the roof of my mouth. She slapped me round the face hard and said, "Don't touch the body of Christ." <sighs> But you're eating the body of Christ. That's what I thought. That was my immediate thought. I'm eating it. I'm going to swallow it. I'm going to crap it.
2: Absolutely. Yes. But no. But was she lunatic, basically?
0: Uh, Aren't all nuns?
2: Well, uh, my wife taught at a convent school, and the first headmistress there was a nun who described the school as the cross she had to bear, which is not quite the right attitude, I think. (laughs) She did leave the school, and I understand that she joined a silent order. And even though it was a silent order, somehow they conveyed to her that she was not welcome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Is well, that the, yeah. My favourite joke is the, the man in the silent order, and you're only allowed to say one thing every five years. <laughs> so he goes in to see the man at the top, and he says, says what well, you're allowed to say or one thing, five years you've been here and he says, Soup's cold. And he says, Okay, I'll do something about it. Goes on five more years, comes in and says, bed's hard. So, right? Another five years. And he comes in and he says, I quit. He said, I'm not surprised you've done nothing but moan since you got here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh dear, dear. That's very good. Yes. Yeah.
0: So, well, I, yes, I, I completely but... agree with you that actually laughter is the
2: best medicine as they say well they say laughter is best medicine and I mean it isn't actually Cinema is the best medicine in my case <laughs> but, but laughter does indeed help enormously and the thing is they, the blacker the joke the more they seem to like it I mm. was talking to a professor and I was saying how sad it was that Robin Williams had taken his own life because he could have brought a lot of published it Parkinson's, and this professor said, uh, well, we don't think he had Parkinson's. I said, oh, and he said, we had the Lewy body dementia that's associated with Parkinson's, but not Parkinson's itself. I said, how do you know? And he said, "Well, well, because he took his own life. Very unusual for people with Parkinson's to take their own life. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, I mean, people with Parkinson's do get extremely depressed, but one of the other symptoms is apathy, so they may feel like killing themselves, but they just can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's amazing, that always goes down a tree oh, with it's Parkinson's nice. audiences. <laughs> and the other one they, they like is, I was um, talking to a neurologist, and he said that uh, a couple came to see him. He said, uh, so any developments this year? And the husband who had Parkinson's um, and it had affected his voice. Uh, so, uh, 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 yeah. and the neurologist thought, I can't ask him to say it again because uh, I don't think I'll understand it anymore. I'm just going to take a punt. I think he was asking me a question and I think from his body language he was expecting the answer no, so I'm just going to take a chance. <laughs> no. <laughs> said the neurologist, at which point the man's wife leant forward and said, What my husband is asking is do you think he needs speech therapy? <laughs>
0: Uh, out of life.
2: Out of life, and it is—it's those things you see that um, that cheer people up. And in fact, it's what's really odd. I went—I'd go to a dance class with ballet. We do ballet um, for Parkinson's, and it's a sort of very good exercise. And last week we were doing a um, La Corsaire, and uh, one of the scenes we were doing was where we were all market stallholders and we are in groups, and we all had to, each group had to invent a cry, you know, get your bananas here, or something <laughs> like that. And my, we decided as our group, what we would cry out was, uh, cure for Parkinson's, only ten pence. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody just loves it. And this is with a group, you know, we've all got Parkinson's, mm. we all know there is no cure, we all know that, basically there isn't going to be a cure in our lifetime and yet we are laughing about the fact that you know there is no cure and we know there isn't and that fills me with delight really and I think there's a danger that we well what I say really is that we need to give ourselves permission to laugh whenever we possibly can you know we take serious illnesses too seriously it always worries me when people say oh Nothing funny about that, or it's that's nothing that's not a subject to joke about Mm. because it absolutely absolutely is absolutely so. I'm just grateful to my funny bone your funny bone, yeah,
0: which is a marvellous funny bone. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna take that very carefully because it needs to be protected. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna put that into the time, capsule. So, yeah, how lovely, yeah. So, we move on to item three. We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. Hopefully.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Welcome
0: back. Okay, let's find out what the third thing is that Paul Mayhew Archer would like to put into his time capsule.
2: Item three is um, I want to put the BBC in the time capsule. God bless you, because it is a wonderful thing. I mean, it's not perfect by any means. It's got lots of you know, it makes mistakes. Like everybody makes mistakes. But I was thinking about it the other day, and um, I mean, it. I think it's one hundred and fifty quid a year, three quid a week, for which you get four channels. Loads of radio stations, the proms, comedies, you know, like this country, which um, I know I'm biased because my son produces it, but it is a work of genius. You get the Olympics. Well, you just get countless things. And actually, I'm sure when people, people say, I don't watch the BBC anymore, and then when you question them more specifically, you find out they do actually listen to certain radio stations or they watch certain programmes, that they don't necessarily think of those as constituting watching the BBC. I, I don't understand it. It seems to me to be extraordinarily good value. And personally, it trained me. And I think it's trained an enormous number of people to do the things that they do. Um, and it's, it allows you to fail. And I think we all need to f- fail sometimes because we learn an enormous amount from failures and uh, it also picked me up when I was down I, I was working at I'd left the BBC and I was working at Channel 4 uh, part-time and part-time writing and when I was about 38 I think it was I decided to fulfill a lifetime's ambition and write full-time so on the Friday afternoon, I left my part-time job at Channel 4, thinking, hurrah, this is marvellous, this is a whole new start. And, I'm, and I got a commission to write a series, and also I was doing a couple of episodes of The Vicar of Dibley. And um, on the Monday morning, I woke up thinking, oh, my God, if I don't write something funny today, um, I can't feed my family. <laughs> and uh, so I went into a bit of a panic. I wrote two episodes of series I was writing and at the end of two months after I'd written these two episodes I sent them off to my producer with a little note saying I have a horrible feeling these are terrible and she phoned me up a day later and she said I have a horrible feeling you're right. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I had to start again and eventually at the end of the year I I had um, I'd written a series and it was all right in fact but I had got into such a state of panic and anxiety that just before the second recording there was a bit of a problem with some a bit of business in the store, in the episode and I got so worked up and so anxious about it that I phoned the producer and said I can't actually come in to rehearsals today because I'm shaking so much I can't actually drive and she was really lovely and she said, uh, what do you do to relax? And I said, well, normally I write, and that's relaxing, but I don't think that's the answer at this moment. And she said, uh, well, go to the cinema, see every film in Oxford. I said, hmm. OK, but before that, I'll just go and see the doctor. And she said, OK. So I went to see the doctor, and he, um, he immediately said, ah, yeah, uh, clinical depression, uh, uh, have some Prozac. And he gave me some <laughs> Prozac. And uh, I started taking this Prozac and I, I went into rehearsals the following week, one week later, and I realised there was something a little bit odd about Prozac and its effect on me because I was driving along the M40 with the window down and singing a song I had never sung before. <laughs> and I can remember the lyrics to this day. They're very interesting lyrics. They went, Fucky, 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 wank, wank, fuck. <laughs> And part of my brain was thinking, um, this is strange, Paul. Uh, But most of my brain was thinking, I don't give a fucky, 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 wang, wang, fuck. And uh, so I thought, this is very peculiar. Anyway, I went to see the BBC doctor. (laughs) And he said, do you know, I sing a song very like that. But I sing it to the chimes of Big Ben. I um, go, fuck, 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 fuck. Wang, quang, quang, quang. <laughs> and he said, but the thing is, I don't need Prozac to do it. He was quite a strange man. <laughs> anyway, so I, I came off the Prozac very quickly after two weeks because um, I was told it can have a worryingly disinhibiting <laughs> effect on some people. But then my good friend and your very good friend, uh, Jeffrey Perkins, mm. who was head of comedy at the time, said, um, Paul you need to get out of the house a bit why don't you come and work at the BBC for a couple of days a week and that sort of helped me back into sort of normality and it's also um, allowed me to to fail i wrote a series years ago called office gossip and it basically i thought it worked it was set in an office it started being broadcast I think about two weeks before The Office went up. (laughs) Wow. And uh, and I suddenly realised my show was dead in the water really because comedy and things had moved on and and The the Office itself was a work of genius. But actually, what I've discovered which is terribly reassuring you know there's that quote in Julius Caesar where he says um, the good that men do oft lies interred with their bones, the evil that men do lives after them. I think it's something that Mark mm-hmm. Anthony said. And with comedy, it's the opposite. Because I've found that what because of, um, you know, all these other channels of television and DVDs and streaming and things, basically, um, the shit that you do lies interred with your bones. Mm. But the good, the good stuff, the funny stuff, that goes on being repeated. So it's completely the opposite, really. And it's so people
0: can look at your career and think, my
2: God, he, he was just, extraordinary. That's Everything exactly it. Everything he
0: touched.
2: That's to exactly gold. it. And if, yes, and they don't realise there was a whole heap of absolute rubbish in amongst them. Like <laughs> think of it as fertiliser. Fertiliser. <laughs> you've got away with um, But it, comedy is genuinely hard because so many things have to be just right. Mm. You know, it's not simply that the. I remember David Renwick. You know, who wrote One Foot in the Grave, which I adore, um, saying he knew how to write a good script, but a good show depends, that's only half the show, the rest depends on the casting and the direction and all the other things that make up a show. Even the set can send the wrong signals, you know, even the opening credits can be the wrong thing to. The opening credits can tell you an enormous amount about the show. Um, In Dibley, Mm -hmm. it's no accident that you start with the cutting through the the M40 and then go through a series of shots to this village, this little valley where this village is, because what you're saying is you're going away from civilization to this peculiar little place, lost in time, where odd things can happen, in the same way that with Father Ted. You know, the helicopter shot goes to this island at the arse end of the universe, as it were. And because you're being taken to these places, it allows you to accept that the weirdest things might go on. Mm. They remade, it was an American show called That 80s Show, they all, these teenagers, all got together in a double garage in the American show, sort of big, wide garage. And they recreated it over here, and he didn't believe it from the start because actually at that stage nobody had a double guard. No. And there was we we made um Golden Girls as Brighton Bells. And I remember there was an episode of the Golden Girls where this bloke one of the women had got off with a bloke and then he said I um I can't see you anymore because you know I, I've got to go and stay with my son and daughter and they they live in Alaska. And you think well, Florida to Alaska that would end the the Brighton Bells, it was. Uh, I can't see anymore because I've got to go and stay with my son in Liverpool. <laughs> you, think, you could get a train, you know, Liverpool to Brighton. It's not the end of the world, really. It's no. just all those little things that can undermine the, the truth or the reality or the, the vision that you want to convey. But anyway, the BBC is an amazing thing that gives you so much. And it's actually remarkably cheap for what you get. Mm. And because we all share it and we all pay for it, that enables it to be cheap for us all. And if you get rid of it or you do anything to it, all those people who rely on it, because I just know that if you make it a subscription service or anything like that, it will be considerably more expensive. Mm. And some people won't be able to afford it and you just undermine something that they get very cheaply. And I know it's incredibly important to people because it's you know, I've talked to people who basically local radio I mean something that you don't really consider very much, but local radio is it's their friend.
0: Mm. And that's the first thing they want to get rid of.
2: And that's the first thing they want to get rid of, yes.
0: I mean, I I think the thing that people forget, and you mentioned the fact that it trained you, the BBC. Yes. And and what people forget is that when they say, well, it's all right, the void will be filled by all these commercial companies. And you say, but all the people, or most of the people working in those commercial companies were trained at the BBC, and they wouldn't be any good at it if they'd not been at the BBC. No, it
2: created that world where you met other people of like minds Mm. doing the same thing. And, and I think it's still the only place that promises to read every script that it's sent. Because nobody else reads them. And um, it's a remarkable thing.
0: I have to agree with you. We've spent most of our life working for the BBC. Yeah, I, and, and yes. So we know its value, I think. Not just from our own economic point of view, but actually for what it does for people.
2: Yeah. It's the knock-on effects that you don't notice immediately if things of such fundamental importance go. Mm. I think there's a reason why, you know, around the world it's regarded with such warmth and, and reverence, really, and, you know, it's admired. Because I think most countries would love to have something like that.
0: I and when we... people say, well, I don't watch the BBC, so why should I pay for it? Mm. I mean, it's, it's like saying, well, I don't have any children, so why should I pay for schools?
2: Yes, well, I think I could I, I'll start doing that, shall I?
0: Mm. Yeah, so, I think the so, so, No, I, I don't need to pay for schools anymore. Yeah. So I'm not going to.
2: But I'd like more to be put into the health service, because I will be using that quite a mm. lot. Because actually, I'd like more in social care, <laughs> because that's the bit I'm going to be... <laughs> Just anything I'm involved. With. Anything I'm involved with. Yes, that's right.
0: <laughs> that seems that seems a great way to run society. Yes, yes. Thank just you, for Paul. me, basically. Yeah, obviously, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll all be saying, "What does Paul want?"
2: No, because I'm going to personally take back control. it? <laughs> <laughs> and I want the BBC. So there we
0: go. Well, then we shall preserve the BBC. Thank you. Could your you? time Council. Yes. And rightly so. Thank you. Three cheers for that. So there we are, in it goes, and uh, we're on to item number four.
2: My fourth item is uh, my wife. I mean, not because I want to bury her. (laughs) But because um, uh, she is uh, remarkable in that, you know, there's never been a moment of question, you know, I've had this illness for some years now and I'm conscious of getting worse and she is she's very funny about it and um, very, well you saw this morning yes. you know, she's, she's um, you suddenly became me. a little boy when the, you
0: tried to pick the biscuits up I tried to because she she's trying to control
2: you. the amount of chocolate I eat because mm. she won't allow me to have chocolate biscuits until I've had something to drink she's you know wants to make sure that I drink lots of water She's always encouraging me, me to do more exercise and she just without question is there to look after me. Um, in my show I do a thing about, you know, how my wife is no longer my wife. She is my carer. Mm. And when I first told her this, she said, but I don't care for you, Paul. <laughs> um, the personal feelings are now here and all that. But actually she is... Um, Remarkably unquestioning about the whole thing. It's just that it. you've got Parkinson's, and we'll do the best we possibly can with it. She's also um, very funny because um, she said to me um, a year or two back, she said, "Now the thing is, Paul, you mustn't worry because if things get really, really bad, I will take us to that place in Sweden." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "I've." Th- I think you mean Switzerland, and she said, oh, yes. But, I mean, she could be taking us to Ikea. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. But she is just, she's very funny. And also, I mean, she's... If she'd left you in Ikea, it would be several months before anybody found you. It would be several months <laughs> And then, then you've got to find the way out. That's right. But aren't the beds, or are they not made up, or are they just flat-pack beds? Because <laughs> I'm absolutely useless. My fingers are, um, are really rubbish, I find. Well, I, I took about ten minutes to put my jumper on the other day, because mm-hmm. my fingers are very useless. And I finally got it on, and she came in the room, and she said, no, no, not that jumper. <laughs> Had <laughs> to take it off. And put it back.
0: <coughs> That's what they said at the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> Not that <back>
2: ceiling. <laughs> what? She also said, because um, she's she's quite deaf and uh, quite hard of hearing, and my voice is getting weaker. So eventually, there will come a time when the only conversation we can have is her speaking and and me listening, mm. which I suppose is. Part of the course, really, isn't it? But it's um. But she also said uh, the, thing about the dementia is it's it's the names that go first, isn't it? Like you um, remember Ivy, um. It, she started forgetting names, and then a couple of years later she'd gone completely. And I said, Ivy, and she said, you know, the woman over the road. I said, Ida, her name was Ida. <laughs> <laughs> And her mum, you see, we, we, we have a slightly odd family in that Julie, when Julie and I got married, my name was Archer, hers was Mayhew, so we put the two names together. And then two years later, my dad Fenton married.
0: Stevens is the same thing. Is
2: it? Mm. Is it really?
0: Yes. I didn't Fenton hear. is my wife's name and Stevens is mine.
2: But did your dad marry your wife's mum? <laughs> no. Because that's what happened to us, you see. So, uh, Judy is not only my wife, but my stepsister as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it meant <laughs> that she brought her mum into our family, and her mum is also uh, glorious because she, um, she is Mrs... Well, she's Mrs Copley from Dibley because um, her cooking was quite eccentric. <laughs> she, um, she once cooked some mushrooms in a load of oil. And Simon, our son, said to her, "Um, if you want to cook mushrooms, you you don't need nearly as much oil. He he sort of told her, you know, gave her sort of hints as to what to do. And the next time we all went round for lunch, she said to Simon, she said, I've cooked those mushrooms exactly as you said. Got a little knob of butter, put it in the pan, fried the mushrooms very gently in the knob of butter. And he said, that's marvellous. And he, she said, yes. Then they were looking a little bit dry, so I poured a cup of soup over them. <laughs> <laughs> She's also, She was also Mrs Malaprop reborn. She said, um, we were on holiday in America, and she said, the thing about Americans is that a lot of them live in these giant condoms. <laughs> and then recently, towards the end, she said... One of the women down the road's gone into hospital. Two Paralympics came and picked her up. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, my, my wife is is something that I'd like... Someone, something. <laughs> someone that I'd like to, to keep in the time capsule because she's a treasure, really. Mm. And, um, I mean, if she wasn't around, there are items of clothes. Sometimes some of my jumpers... I, I literally would be in a straitjacket because I put it on and I get halfway through and it is literally stuck around my arms and I can't get it off and I can't get it on and if she and I they find it, you like that help me do you? <laughs> <laughs> so you find me I can't I can't eat I can't drink anything
0: I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> says the so, coroner so yeah. death by jumper
2: death by jumper <laughs> <laughs> so it's absolutely vitally important that she she is around and because she she cheers me up enormously. So, mm.
0: yeah, yeah. Well great. Then then your dear wife. Yes. <laughs> well in her own time. Well, in in she, her own time.
2: Yeah. Uh, yes, I I don't have to take her now. No. Because I? I, I did yeah. actually I I'm going to donate my brain to Parkinsons and I'm asking her if she will donate hers as well because they need normal brains. Of course. As well as Parkinson's brains to study the the difference Mm. between. So our two brains Mm. could be sort of put together in some sort of.
0: How lovely. (laughs)
2: In
0: in a bell jar. (laughs) (laughs) um, Fine. Well, that's marvellous. So, Paul, I'm, I'm sorry to say we've come to the final item. And this, of course, is an item that something that you don't like, or something in your life that you're, you're glad to get rid of.
2: Yes, uh, this is the thing, um, and I live with it every day, and it is a, uh, can be a prominent feature of my day. It's my bladder. <laughs> um, I won't beat about the bush. Every day is like a race against time, in the sort of Indiana Jones stuff. You know you know that boulder that's coming down behind you? Yes. Every day my life has moments when the boulder is coming down and I've got to run out of the way and get to the toilet before the boulder sort of squashes me flat and drowns everybody because it is just uh, uh, extraordinary, really. It comes on with such ferocity um, and speed. I can... I can be somewhere and I can, they say, do you need the loo? And I say, no, I'm absolutely fine. And literally two minutes later, I'm bursting and I have to rush to find a, a loo. And um, it can be very embarrassing at times. I was in Abingdon. I used to judge a competition called um, Abingdon's Got Talent. And it's always amazed me how little talent having this has, but no, no, it does have some fantasy. Anyway, um, Radio Oxford rang me one year and said, uh, Could they do a live interview just before it began? And I said, Fine, ring me up. So um, I was waiting for the call, and suddenly I got my urgent bladder call, and I thought, Well, so I rushed to the loo and um, the thing is, I always um, sit down, even if I'm just having a pee, because although I don't have a tremor, I never know when one's going to start, so I sit down to be on the safe side. And I also never take my coat off, because if I do, it'll take me 15 minutes to get my coat on again. So um, I sit on the loom <laughs> and I sort of inch myself forward a bit so I can get hold of my coat behind me. In forward a little bit more so I can really hitch my coat up behind me so I don't want that going in the bowl and then I started having a pee and I realised halfway through that I'd edged myself so far forward that I wasn't actually peeing into the bowl. Oh no! At which point the phone rang <laughs> and yes it was Radio Oxford doing their <laughs> live interview and <laughs> I think there was a the moment when they must have guessed something odd was happening because <laughs> they said, where are you, Paul? It sounds very mm-hmm. echoey in there. And then there was a knock on the cubicle door and a voice said, who are you talking to? We don't allow couples in there. It is uh, astonishing, really, how, how much it controls our lives. And for, for some people with Parkinson's or, or just difficulties with their bladder, it's humiliatingly embarrassing and I think it's important to talk about it because I think, we, I think it's something we, a load of us have and it's a problem. And we, When I was doing my tour, the very first performance, I was doing it at the Soho Theatre in London and, you know, I was terribly thrilled and very excited. I had a lovely evening and um, then I got the bus... To some friends who were living in Stoke Newington, I was staying with them, and I realised as I was on the bus, I didn't know which stop to get off at. So I just went into Stoke Newington, and I got off the bus in Stoke Newington High Street, desperate for a pee, and there I was at midnight, after lovely, you know, life fulfilling thing of um, performing at the Soho Theatre. I was so excited and. And three hours later, I was pissing my pants in the middle of Stoke Newington High Street because I couldn't do anything else. And you think I've gone... I've, I've gone from sort of loveliness to utter squalor <laughs> in the space of a matter of hours. Life is summed up. Life is summed
0: up. When you're young and you, you're learning that thing of going to the toilet. So mm. You've got a, a grandchild. Yes. I mean, you'll, you'll see this as yes. as they get I'm trips.
2: so envious. He can go anytime and it doesn't matter. You know, he's Fair. five months old. I, I sort of think that we're, because both of us, um, we're pretty much at the same stage of development at the moment. Um, he's learning to speak. I'm sort of forgetting <laughs> to speak. Uh, both of us have trouble turning over. Um, uh, Both of us have trouble with, you know, controlling our bladders. Um, And I think that, you know, come a stage one will sort of totter towards one another Mm. in opposite directions, as it were. And then uh, I'll go on my way and he'll go on his way. And there's something about the circle of life that I'm becoming increasingly aware of. Though, what's rather wonderful about having a grandson um, is that it's made me um, refocus my, um, my outlook on life in the sense that I am determined to go on as long as possible mm. um, if only because I just want to see what happens to him. Yes. It's sort of um, you know uh, it's so exciting watching a, a small child develop day to day And I just want to go on. And also, I want him, you know, I suppose this is a bit arrogant, but I want him to know me Mm. for as long as possible so that he has some sort of memories
0: of of me. Well, hopefully, he will be able to look into your time capsule and see see some of the things that made you laugh and that you felt were important to you. And it's been really lovely to talk to you, Paul. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you. You have
0: been listening to My Time Capsule, as if you didn't know that, with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Paul Mayhew Archer. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or your own favorite podcast provider. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thank you. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest about My Time Capsule. Just search at myTCpod. Or you can follow me, if you fancy, at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Past the Peas Music. Thank you very much for listening. So, until next time, keep well. And like Paul, keep smiling. Because that really cheers people up get to look at you and say, who's that idiot who smiles all the bloody time?